Good morning. Our passage today can be found in the book of Luke, chapter 24. You can turn there in your Bibles or find the passage there in your bulletin. Let's give attention to God's Word. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, When they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. But when he he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven with those who were with them gathered there together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to you this morning needing bread for our souls. Father, we need to see Jesus afresh. We need our hope stirred up. Father, speak to us this morning by your Spirit. Point us to Jesus Fill our hearts, bring our hearts to burning again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've taken a little bit of a journey together. This is the last of a series we've been doing on 
meals with Jesus. It's a pretty significant motif in the book of Luke. And now we come to the final meal. I have the privilege of talking about, preaching about this final meal with Jesus. And this meal is a significant meal indeed. Last week, we looked at the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples, shared with his disciples before his death. And now this week, we look at what is, according to Luke, the first supper that Jesus shares with his disciples on the new day of the resurrection. And at this supper, he reveals himself to his disciples. And he confirms their faith. He confirms them in hope. And so for this reason, this meal is very climactic in Luke's gospel. And we have seen in this series how meals have, a lot has happened around the dinner table, right? A lot of what Jesus wants to make known about himself occurs at the meals. We've seen how Jesus chose specifically to reveal the upside-down nature of his kingdom at these meals and to to challenge the status feasting that goes on among his people. We've also seen how Jesus revealed his scandalous grace to those who least deserved it at these meals. And we've seen how he speaks of his mission to seek and save the lost at these meals. And so now we come to this final meal where Jesus now chooses to reveal himself as the triumphant risen Christ at a meal. That's a beautiful thing. But there's a road that we must walk first to get to this meal. Because the disciples now on this side of the cross, these two disciples have a problem. They don't see Jesus. And they lack hope. They said, we had hoped We had hoped in Jesus. And so this passage revolves around this problem of hope crushed by the cross, by the darkness of it, by the trauma of it. Their hopes were crushed. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that the Christian life revolves around three things. Faith, hope, and love. And as Christians, we rightly put a lot of emphasis on faith and love as the things that accompany salvation. And sometimes hope just kind of fades in those three. And yet hope is so essential to our living and walking this journey that we call the Christian life. Without hope, we shrivel up because Human beings are actually the kind of creatures that need hope to live, just like a flower needs the sun to live. Without hope, what happens to a human being? They shrivel up. They die on the vine. They may exist for a time, but human beings without hope are in danger. We worry about them because we need hope. And everyone hopes for something. Even children, they live off of hope. They hope to grow up 
and learn new things. Learn about the world. Enjoy the world. They hope in these things. It fills them with joy and brightness, and we love that when we see it in their eyes. And as we grow up and we experience these joys of the world and also its pains, we also tend to set our hopes on things, a myriad of things, whether it be careers, right? whether it be marriage in the future or maybe a house full of children in the future or maybe a house devoid of children in the future or vacations or retirement, travel. These things we set before ourselves and we hope in them. And they're not bad things. But Jesus here wants us to place our hope on a firm foundation. He wants to reorient our hopes such that they are not hollow and crushable, that we are not crushed when these things that we hope in fail us. Because there is one great hope that Jesus wants to solidify in our hearts, and that is the hope of the resurrection. That is the hope of seeing him. And so on this road, Jesus again seeks and finds his disciples, and he ministers to them. He restores them. And then he reveals himself in a climactic way at this meal. And like these disciples, Jesus wants to lead us into hope. He wants to restore our broken hopes and put us on a firm foundation. So let's look at how Jesus does that to these disciples so that we might be instructed. We'll look at three points today. Hope lost, hope found, and hope enjoyed. So you can jot those down on your bulletin if you're a note taker. Hope lost, hope found, and hope enjoyed. Let's consider hope lost. In verse 13, we see at the very beginning of our passage that that very day, which was Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead, two of his disciples were going to this village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. In verse 14, it says they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. Now, these are two of the larger community of disciples that were present with the twelve, when Jesus was crucified, present at the Passover. And they had just witnessed the gruesome, torturous execution of the one that they had placed all of their hopes upon. Now, we don't know these disciples very well. One of them is named Cleopas. The other one is not named. We don't know the relationship between the two. It's not explicit. However, it is likely that what we have here is a couple. It is likely that what we have here is a husband and a wife traveling home from the feast, departing from the company of disciples, but maybe departing too early. They're departing sad. That very morning, we read that they had heard the testimony of the women who went to the tomb and found that it was empty. But If you look back at verse 11, what does it say there? These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Rosaria Butterfield describes this scene in a beautiful way, and yet a very sad way. She says this, When they heard about the empty tomb, in the empty tomb they saw only emptiness. Only emptiness. 
Where is Jesus? He's gone. And so why stick around, right? Why stick around with the disciples? Why remain together? He's gone. Let's go home. We're done here. And they're walking away from Jerusalem, away from the community of Jesus' followers that they had come to love. And while they're walking and talking, the stranger overtakes them. And you can see that their hearts are so raw from what they have experienced that weekend on Friday that when Jesus asks them what they're talking about, verse 17 says they stood still. They just need to get their composure. And they're just looking sad. They're devastated by the events of Friday. And Cleopas finally musters the strength to speak. And what does he say? He's kind, of, he's kind of upset. He's kind of frustrated. Why is this guy asking questions? Doesn't he know anything? And he, and he basically indirectly insults this stranger, saying, what planet have you been living on? And he doesn't know who he's talking to. We know who he's talking to. He's talking to Jesus himself. But it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, we're not told explicitly why they don't recognize Jesus. But you can be sure that there's no natural explanation that could suffice for this. And it's not just that they are so unbelieving that they couldn't bring themselves to recognize their friend. Because guess what? All of the disciples were unbelieving when Jesus first appeared to them, and they recognized him immediately. So it's not that. The best explanation for this is that this is a divine intervention, a divine blinding for a purpose. Jesus is purposefully shielding their eyes and keeping them from recognizing him for a purpose, to teach us something. Because he wants to turn them from their despair to solid hope in a particular way. It's going to take some time. He does it slow with these guys. And it's instructive for us, this side of the resurrection, because the way that we also come to solid hope is going to be similar. So Jesus is insulted by Cleopas, and yet he responds with grace, simply asks, what things? And we know when Jesus asks a question, he's not really wondering what happened. Clearly, he's not wondering what happened. It happened to him, right? This happened to him. And he asked, what things? Why don't you tell me what you think happened on Friday? It's an amazing question to draw them in and to get them to talk about how they interpreted these events. And also, perhaps, to work through their pain. So, Jesus asks them, what things? And they describe Jesus' ministry in glowing terms, right? He was a prophet like Moses, mighty in word and deed. It's like, if only you could see how he was among the people. If only you could have witnessed his power to heal. If only you could have seen him silence demons with a word and silence the religious leaders. And yet, They got to him. They schemed. They plotted. They murdered him. They were successful. It's over. 
And according to their perception, right, evil got the last word here. Injustice got the last word. But Jesus, darkness swallowed up the light. And the bondage of exile remains unbroken. And so they say in verse 21, we had hoped in Jesus. We had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And yet we saw him there, beaten to a pulp. His naked body hanging on that tree, bloodied, shamed by men, and apparently cursed by God. So the cross decimated their hope in Jesus. Why? Because the cross didn't play in to their view of redemption, of what redemption should look like. It didn't play in at all for them. And they had hoped for a kind of redemption Jesus didn't come to give. Right? They had hoped for their political enemies to be crushed. They had hoped for the Jewish nation to be restored to its former glory. They wanted economic relief from all their troubles. They wanted glory. And what they got was a cross. And so I wonder this morning if any of you today can relate to these words that the disciples speak. We had hoped. We had hoped. Because all of us at some point in our Christian pilgrimage will probably utter these words or feel them in our hearts. Because all of us come to Jesus initially with our own ideas of what we think redemption should look like in our own lives. And perhaps you thought that redemption should look a certain way. Perhaps you thought that it shouldn't be so messy. Perhaps you thought that you shouldn't go through the junk that you've had to go through for so many years. And all the pain of it. Perhaps you thought that this dying to sin should have been less torturous than it is. Perhaps you had hoped that following Jesus was one uninterrupted progression from glory to glory without a cross. See, these disciples hoped in Jesus for redemption, but their redemption did not include the cross. And so in the cross, they saw only curse. And they saw only purposeless pain. And so the cross deconstructed their hope. And yet here Jesus draws near to them on the road where they are in a hopeless and depressed state. And he finds them there on the road. And he begins to reconstruct their hope aright. How does he do it? Consider with me our second point, hope found. This ignorant stranger responds to their version of the story now in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He rebukes them gently because he loves them. We see Jesus does this in Revelation 3, verse 19. I rebuke those I love 
Jesus says. I'm sorry, you guys are the ignorant ones here. You really don't know what's happened. And you're on the road traveling in the wrong direction on Sunday because you don't know what happened really on Friday. Don't you know the Messiah had to suffer these things? The cross must come before the crown. Suffering to glory is the way, is the pattern set down for Messiah. It's been laid down and he's had to walk it for his people. It was necessary. Why was it necessary? For our salvation. That's the only reason it was necessary. He did it for us, and it was the only way to redeem his people. And he calls them slow of heart because they had a deeper problem than just an intellectual problem or just an informational problem. The facts that they already had should have led them to anticipate the sunrise. It should have led them to anticipate he's going to come back. The tomb's empty. Peter and John have testified. It's exactly as the women have said. Why are they on the road? Why are they leaving? Jesus says, your hearts are slow to believe. There's something wrong. It's like the, the heart here is described like, like that old lawnmower in your shed. It doesn't work. It's still there. Can't get rid of it. And every time you try to start it, you just pull and pull and pull, and it's full of gas, and it, nothing happens. Larry's laughing. He's done this a couple times. That's how the heart is being described here. They're slow. It's, they're dead and cold, and it's not starting the way it's supposed to. The information should have a certain effect, and it's not. And so, what does Jesus do to awaken their cold hearts? How does he reconstruct their hope? He takes them to the Bible. He takes them to Scripture. He opens it up for them. And he says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, which really includes the Psalms. He interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. That it was all really about him. So instead of simply revealing himself physically and saying, here I am, rejoice, he doesn't want to do this because he doesn't want them to simply rejoice in his resurrection as some isolated miracle. He wants them to see the great cosmic redemptive significance of this miracle of resurrection by taking them to the scriptures. And where did he take them? To the Old Testament to show this. Luke doesn't tell us where he took them, but it was all over the scriptures, all over the prophets, and even the law. He took them to show them what redemption really was and what the Messiah came to do. And so in this, Jesus is teaching us, calling us to take up and read your Bible, and specifically, read, brothers, read, sisters, your Old Testament. Study it. Seek him and find him there because he's there. And if you take up and read the Old Testament, 
for what it's meant to be as that great unfolding story of redemption that is centered around and culminates in and is fulfilled by Jesus, you will discover pure gold for your faith. You know that Sunday school song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. It's a great song. It's catchy for kids, but it's not the whole truth. Because the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, can be kind of a confusing and dark and scary book. Just ask the youth group. (laughs) We've been studying the book of Judges recently. And you can read the Bible every day, but it will be utterly useless to you if you fail to understand its central message. Cult leaders read their Bible every day obsessively and they twist it to their own destruction and the destruction of others. The Pharisees knew their Bibles, every word and letter of it, better than you and better than me. And what does Jesus say to them? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And so Jesus preached Jesus from the Old Testament and to teach us that we should seek him and find him there for our faith, for our hope. And from those Old Testament scriptures, Jesus showed them that their view of redemption was not deep enough and it was not wide enough. They envisioned a temporal salvation. They thought the Old Testament spoke of a temporal salvation for the nation, and it spoke about something so much more. And like these men, we are prone to to prefer our small-minded, small-hearted views of redemption. We think we would be okay if God just gave us a decent life here and now, made us a little bit better people, fixed our family, fixed our finances, and set us up to enjoy life. We think that's what redemption should maybe look like. We'd be happy if that was all it was. And our God says, no. It's too small. It's too shallow. It's not enough. Read your Bibles. Christ came to do something greater and deeper, and it was all by way of the cross. You don't get any of that without the cross. Because the Messiah came to do something beyond our wildest dreams. But the cross was the way to it. By the cross, the Messiah came to bear away our sin problem, the cause of all human woe and misery. Take it away. And bring us into a new creation where sorrows are no more and where death itself is swallowed up. This is what the Old Testament speaks of. And so this Jesus incognito ministers to them through the Old Testament and says, look, you have the wrong interpretation of Friday. What you interpret as failure is God's greatest victory. What you interpret as the enemy triumphing over Jesus is Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. And what you interpret as redemption hijacked 
is really redemption fully accomplished. And so, in doing this, in taking his disciples to the scriptures and reconstructing their hope aright, setting it on a firm foundation, Jesus taught us how we are to read his book for our hope. It's not a book of morality tales. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a medium from which we tell our own stories and get our own answers. It's a God's great cosmic story of redemption that culminates in and centers upon Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's good news. Many passages, brothers and sisters, in the Bible are still hard to make sense out of. But when we keep Jesus as the focus, the Bible can be for us what it was meant to be, a wellspring of hope on our journey from which we drink continually. And this is what happened to the disciples. The Bible, interpreted to them by Jesus, understood It made their hearts burn. They started to feel something inside. They were dead, cold, and yet they say, at looking back, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? And so they urged him when they got to their destination, stay with us. We want you with us. They wanted to hear more. See, when the stranger first approached, they probably wanted to get rid of him, right? This guy, stop asking questions. We're hurting. Can't you see? And now they get to their destination. They say, come and dine with us. Just stay. Keep talking. It's like you have the words of eternal life. So consider with me our last point, hope enjoyed. It's only after Jesus takes them along the road and questions them, listens to their misplaced shattered hopes and rebukes them gently and reorients their hopes around himself using scripture. Only then does he choose to physically reveal himself to them at the table, at the dinner table. And so joining them as their guest, Jesus does what he so often did and he turns the tables on them in a moment and he becomes the host. In verse 30 and 31 it says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 33, And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So we see here Jesus has now turned his disciples around. He has sought them and found them, and he's turned their sorrow to joy. He's replaced their hollow and shattered hopes with solid hope, rooted in the scriptures and now confirmed in the resurrection. And it is not insignificant that Jesus chose this moment to make his presence known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, the pattern of words that we see here in verse 30 when Jesus blesses the bread, He takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them, mirrors exactly the language of the feeding of the 5,000. And we've already seen how the feeding of the 5,000 is really foreshadowing how Jesus would give his flesh for the life of the world. And in that redemptive act, then, is signified 
in the supper and given to us, his people, to be celebrated until the end of the age. And so that light should go off in our heads. Supper. Church. We also, though, know that breaking bread is language, it's shorthand in the New Testament for the commu- what we call the communion of the saints. The union that we have with one another by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us and that union being expressed in table fellowship together. And so we have these two, two signals going off in our brains as we hear these words as they should. Supper, ordinance, church, mealtime, fellowship, communion with the saints. And there is an unbreakable bond between these two things in the New Testament. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, where Paul speaks of it. So these observations might lead us to suspect that Jesus is trying to teach us something when he chooses to reveal himself in this way in the breaking of the bread. And we're right. He is. Consider how this section, how, how they, Jesus was made known in the breaking of the bread, how that is now taken up in the next volume that Luke writes in Acts. That's written by Luke. That's volume two. And we see that same phrase, in the breaking of the bread, carried over exactly in only one place. One place by the same author. Right at the beginning of Luke's second volume. It's like he's trying to draw a connection. It's like he's trying to create a bridge and say, look at this. And it's, guess what? It's in chapter 2, when the church is just taking its baby steps and Jesus isn't physically present with them anymore. Acts 2.42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And then in, 47, in 46 it says, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, Jesus broke bread with sinners throughout his whole earthly ministry. And yet what he's teaching us here is the table fellowship of Jesus is meant to carry on to the next volume by the Spirit. The table fellowship of Jesus is not over. The risen Christ wants to make his presence known now in the breaking of the bread among us. In Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus says to a church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So he wants to dine with us. But how does he do it today? By continuing to break bread together. By breaking bread together in Jesus' name and in the bond of love, by the Spirit, we carry on the meal. We carry on the feast. So, as we feast upon the scriptures, as these disciples did on the road, the scriptures that testify of Jesus, as we sit around the Lord's table together and receive the signs of his love and redemption that he wrought for us, and as we receive one another 
into our homes, into our lives, in the genuine bond of love. There, Christ says, I am present among you by my Spirit, the Spirit that dwells in you and in me. And so in this way we carry on the feast and we feast together upon the hope of glory. Until the day we see him face to face, Jesus points us to his word where he makes himself known in all the scriptures and he points us to one another and he says, carry on the meal. Carry on the meal. Continue to break bread together in the bond of love. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for Jesus, for the incredible gift of redemption. And we thank you for your church, for the fellowship of the communion that we have in him by the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to lean in now to that fellowship and continue table fellowship with you by the Spirit that you've made to dwell within us. In Jesus' name.